Good morning, souls. Um, Deacon Mary is caught up with some travel difficulties right now, um, so I get to introduce myself. My name is Melody, and I'm really excited to teach again, technically back-to-back in catechesis here after the holidays. So thank you for joining me on this first Sunday of Epiphany. It's a new year. We're moving forward. Maybe you're making some resolutions of small habits you'd like to change or goals that you want to accomplish. The new year can be a time to shake things up a little bit, to consider a way of error and correct it. And that's what I'd like to do this morning under the guidance of Mariah W. Stewart. She is our exemplar today, a speaker of powerful rhetoric, a voice of truth to a wayward nation, and a woman filled with the Holy Spirit. Please jot down your questions on your handout and I'll answer them at the end. Before we revel in Mariah's speeches and learn from her example of figural reading, we need to see why she had this holy indignation. We've spent the last three months learning about figural reading. We've considered poets, priests, and scholars. We've experienced how figural reading can enliven us, the church, to live in God's story and to walk in his ways. Figural reading is a method of symbol, story, and imagination. Our own place of worship is arranged to display this. We wash ourselves in the water of baptism as we enter. Our scriptures are placed in the center on the altar of Christ's sacrifice, which all may approach. To participate in the Anglican tradition is to live figural reading. Yet figural reading is a method, and like any method, it can be misapplied. One of the most famous men in American history was Episcopalian, and I'm not talking about George Washington. This man was an altar boy. He was confirmed into the Protestant Episcopal Church at age 47. The title page of his personal book of common prayer showed Christ's head bowing under a crown of thorns. He knew the power of the church and its symbol. He knew the altar as the focal point of Christian worship, how it placed Christ at the center as the object of our worship. He had all the marks of piety and devotion. This man was well-versed in figural reading. Who was he? The greatest traitor in the history of the United States, Robert E. Lee. Lee was educated at West Point Military Academy, graduating second in his class. He married Mariana Custis Lee, the great-granddaughter of George Washington's wife, Martha Custis, and they inherited the Custis family land. He served in the United States Army for over 20 years. Yet when secession came, Lee considered his dual loyalties, his nation and his home in Virginia. Though he had been asked to lead the military forces protecting Washington, Lee chose Virginia. The historical facts of the Civil War have been obscured by a movement called the Lost Cause. After the South lost the Civil War, rather than man up and admit the truth, many in the South chose to claim that the war was fought over states' rights to preserve a way of life. This false myth is still alive today. Uh, just ask Nikki Haley why the Civil War was fought, or ask Doug Wilson what American slavery was really like. Though the fanciful myths of the lost cause seek to find nobility, honor, and chivalry in Lee's surrender to the Union, it broke his spirit. Lee's entire life had been devoted to one military or another. 
and to family wealth and land that had been seized during the Civil War. He had nothing. Six months after his surrender, Lee was approached by Washington College. They needed someone who could fundraise, draw students, prevent the college from closing. The college offered to rename itself Washington and Glee College. Would he become president? Lee said yes, and the institution is still around today. At Lee's request, a chapel was built on the grounds, likely designed by Lee's own son. It was built according to the plan of a church, as most chapels are, with seats facing forward towards portraits of George Washington and Robert E. Lee. And since Lee's death in 1870 from pneumonia after a stroke, Lee's office in the chapel basement has been preserved as he left it. Lee was buried in the crypt beneath the chapel. He clearly saw this chapel as a version of an Episcopalian church, including in it many features of church symbol and worship, installing himself as its priest. Thirteen years after Lee's death, a statue was laid in the very place of the chapel altar. It is known as the recumbent statue of Robert E. Lee, showing him lying supine on the battlefield. Confederate flags hung on the wall surrounding this figure. Though Lee's remains are still kept in the crypt, his body lays on the altar. John Daniel, the keynote speaker at the 1883 unveiling of the statue said, since the Son of Man stood upon the mount and saw all the kingdoms of the earth and the glory thereof stretched before him and turned away from them to the agony and bloody sweat of Gethsemane and to the cross of Calvary beyond, no follower of the meek and lowly Savior can have undergone a more trying ordeal than Lee. Thus, with as chaste a heart as ever plighted its faith until death, for better or for worse, Lee came to do, to suffer, and to die for us. Make no mistake, figural reading can lead to serious error. When figural reading bows at the altar of anyone other than Christ, it leads to idolatry and heresy. In 2019, Ted Delaney, the first black chair of Washington and Lee's history department, said of the chapel, the symbolism there is a violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me indeed. The misapplication of figural reading in the public memory of Robert E. Lee led to a mockery of Jesus Christ. When figural reading leads to self-aggrandizement, when it leads to our personal comfort rather than our spiritual wellness, when it leads to worship of self rather than worship of the one true God, figural reading is worse than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It leads to idolatry, causing harm to bodies and souls and profaning the Most High God. When Jesus went into the Nazareth synagogue in Luke 4, he read from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. If this mission statement of Jesus' ministry is not being fulfilled in our figural reading, we are not doing it right. Figural reading as a method only works when guided by the Holy Spirit, when it cultivates faith, hope, and love, when it develops humility, 
when it frees and heals and blesses as Jesus did in his ministry. I drew the ugly picture of Lee and the heretical hero worship that still exists in the United States today to show how great a darkness can be cast by erroneous figural reading. This darkness is what Mariah W. Stewart was up against. Abolition of human chattel slavery in the United States was all-encompassing. It was moral, social, philosophical, theological. Mariah explored all of these things in her work, and she used figural reading properly to do it. Born Mariah Miller in 1803 in Hartford, Connecticut, to free parents, Mariah was orphaned at age three and raised in a minister's home where she worked as an indentured servant. There she was taught to read and write. She wrote, I have borrowed much of my language from the Holy Bible. During the years of childhood and youth, it was the book that I mostly studied. And now while my hands are toiling for their daily sustenance, my heart is most generally meditating upon its divine truths. At age 23, she married James W. Stewart, an independent shipping agent. They were married in the African Meeting House in Boston, Massachusetts by the Reverend Thomas Paul. She took her husband's surname and middle initial. Sadly, James died after three years of marriage and Mariah was widowed. Yet the executors of James' estate deprived her of her husband's resources. A year after she was widowed, 27-year-old Mariah was shocked by the death of David Walker. He was a local black businessman, much like her husband had been and wrote a controversial piece on race relations. About a year after he published it, Walker was found dead, likely murdered outside of his shop. The news of Walker's death led to a spiritual experience for Mariah. She wrote of it, in imagination, I found myself sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in my right mind, for before I had been like a ship tossed to and fro in a storm at sea. Then was I glad when I realized the dangers I had escaped. Then I consecrated my soul and body and all the powers of my mind to his service. She viewed her service to God as activism. Mariah vowed to advocate for God's cause, which she considered to be freedom. In the United States in the 1830s, activism happened in many ways. People would open their homes to gatherings where speakers could reach a small audience. For many women, these private gatherings were a significant source of social engagement, informal education, and activism. Speaking in public was a different matter, where men and women were gathered together. Public audiences were not accustomed to a woman speaking, much less to a black woman speaking. Yet during the 1830s, many women found the burden of their consciences so great that they endured widespread ridicule for speaking publicly rather than staying silent in the face of evil. Mariah said of her decision to speak publicly, it was contempt for my moral and religious opinions in private that drove me thus to speak before a public. Mariah was one of many to speak publicly about abolition, but to the best of our knowledge, she was the first black woman to have an extant record of public speaking in the United States. Her speeches are rhetorically powerful works of political theology. In her speech, Religion and the Pure Principles of Morality, delivered in 1831, Mariah said, This is the land of freedom. The press is at liberty. 
Every man has a right to express his opinion. Many think because your skins are tinged with a sable hue that you are an inferior race of beings. But God does not consider you as such. He hath formed and fashioned you in his own glorious image and hath bestowed upon you reason and strong powers of the intellect. He hath made you to have dominion over the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and the fishes of the sea. He hath crowned you with glory and honor, hath made you but a little lower than the angels. And according to the Constitution of these United States, he hath made all men free and equal. Then why should one worm say to another, keep you down there while I sit up yonder, for I am better than thou? It is not the color of the skin that makes the man, but it is the principle formed within the soul. Her words are so rich with biblical language, quotations, and imagery. As a mother of black political theology, Mariah's ideas ripple through the centuries. Who cannot think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech when we hear, it is not the color of the skin that makes the man, but it is the principle formed within the soul. Mariah's speeches were published and widely disseminated in The Liberator, which was a prominent and highly controversial newspaper published by William Lloyd Garrison, a fiery abolitionist. Garrison knew how to shock society for the cause of abolition, and he promoted voices of men and women, black and white, who spoke or wrote persuasively for the freedom of enslaved people. On the third page of your handout, you can see an example of her work published in The Liberator. Mariah only spoke publicly for three years, eventually turning her considerable energies to other efforts. Yet she remained proud of her speeches and continued to write, publishing her memoir and speeches together in a book called Meditations from the Pen of Mrs. Mariah W. Stewart. Mariah became an educator, establishing and teaching at both free and paid schools, for she believed, like Francis Bacon, that knowledge is power. She was a nurse at the Freedmen's Hospital and Asylum in Washington, D.C., which is now the medical school of Howard University. She died at the hospital in 1879 after a long career of activism and service. Let's turn now to one of her speeches. On September 21st, 1833, Mariah concluded her brief public speaking career with a farewell address at the African Meeting House in Boston. In this farewell speech, she polished the ideas she had been developing in her previous speeches. She not only had to defend her human dignity as a black person, she also had to prove her intellectual ability as a woman. You can follow along in your handout on page two as I read excerpts from this speech. What if I am a woman? Is not the God of ancient times the God of these modern days? Did he not raise up Deborah to be a mother and a judge in Israel? Did not Queen Esther save the lives of the Jews and Mary Magdalene first declare the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Come, said the woman of Samaria, and see a man that hath told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? St. Paul declared that it was a shame for a woman to speak in public. Yet our great high priest and advocate did not condemn the woman for a more notorious offense than this. Neither will he condemn this worthless worm. The bruised reed he will not break, and the smoking flax he will not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. 
Did St. Paul but know of our wrongs and deprivations, I presume he would make no objection to our pleading in public for our rights. Again, holy women ministered unto Christ and the apostles, and women of refinement in all ages, more or less, have had a voice in moral, religious, and political subjects. Again, why the Almighty hath imparted unto me the power of speaking thus, I cannot tell. And Jesus lifted up his voice and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Farewell. In a few short years from now, we shall meet in those upper regions where parting will be no more. There we shall sing and shout and shout and sing and make heaven's high arches ring. There we shall range in rich pastures and partake of those living streams that never dry. Oh, blissful thought, hatred and contention shall cease. And we shall join with redeemed millions in ascribing glory and honor and riches and power and blessing to the Lamb that was slain and to him that sitteth on the throne. No eye hath seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive of the joys that are prepared for them that love God. Thus far has my life been almost a life of complete disappointment. God has tried me as by fire. Well was I aware that if I contended boldly for his cause, I must suffer. Yet I chose rather to suffer affliction with his people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And I believe that the glorious declaration was about to be made applicable to me that was made to God's ancient covenant people by the prophet. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Say unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquities are pardoned. I believe that a rich reward awaits me, if not in this world, in the world to come. Oh, blessed reflection, the bitterness of my soul has departed from those who endeavored to discourage and hinder me in my Christian progress, and I can now forgive my enemies. Bless those who have hated me, and cheerfully pray for those who have despitefully used and persecuted me. Please gather into small groups for a few minutes and discuss this excerpt together. Whom does Mariah center in her figural reading? What fruits of the Spirit does she demonstrate? All right, let's gather back together. Can you just like talk about that passage all day? And it was only one small part of her speech. Can you hear how deeply Mariah is immersed in scripture? I counted 63 direct references to or quotations from the Bible in this one speech, and it's shorter than the talk that I'm giving today. This woman lived and breathed God's words. They taught her how to understand herself and her world, to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with her God. In pre-Civil War America, the Bible was at the center of many, if not most, discussions surrounding slavery. A popular pro-slavery argument was the curse of Ham. This posited that Noah's curse, which Noah made from embarrassment towards the descendants of his son Ham, somehow legitimized modern-day chattel slavery in the United States, and that was figural reading. And as we have seen, figural reading can be twisted to deify a man who is not God incarnate and to violate the first commandment. In this morass of pro-slavery figural reading, Mariah's figural reading shows us a still more excellent way. She speaks of her conversion, her intimacy with Christ, 
We can trust her words because she shows a powerful change of heart. She can now forgive her enemies and bless those who hate her, praying cheerfully for those who persecuted her. Remember, this is Mariah's farewell address. She was not trying to turn speaking into a career or sell copies of her book or to shore up authority for herself in any way. She was compelled by her faith in Jesus Christ to speak the truth in love from a posture of Christian hope to American society. She did not need a university named after her. She did not need a statue to enshrine her memory in idol worship. She ascribed glory and honor and riches and power and blessing to the lamb that was slain, to the one who knew her suffering and that of her people. The title of my talk this morning is A Holy Indignation. Mariah used this phrase in her memoirs when she described her journey into the Episcopal Church. Most U.S. churches in her time practiced segregation, even in the North, even in congregations that supported anti-slavery efforts. Mariah wrote, The prescription of the church at that time was awful. Sometimes she administered her communion to black people when they were at the table of the Lord, and sometimes she passed them by when they were at the table. My soul became filled with a holy indignation. I complained, and the result was the organization of St. Mary's Church. St. Mary's Episcopal Church was founded in 1867 in Washington, D.C., to serve black parishioners who were mistreated, even denied communion in majority white churches. Christians like Mariah stood up for their rights as humans, as Christians, to worship freely and partake of the Eucharist. Mariah's holy indignation was indignant on behalf of Christ. James, too, has harsh words for those who show partiality at the communion table, calling them judges with evil thoughts a passage Mariah cited in her speeches. Figural reading from Mariah W. Stewart led to a valiant career seeking justice, righteousness, and truth. Her confidence was not in herself, her works, or her abilities. She had unshakable trust in the Lord. In the pages of scripture, she not only found herself liberated and loved by the triune God, she found Jesus who proclaimed good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, and set the oppressed free. Let's close with her words. I have never taken one step, my friends, with a design to raise myself in your esteem or to gain applause. But what I have done has been done with an eye single to the glory of God and to promote the good of souls. I have neither kindred nor friends. I stand alone in your midst, exposed to the fiery darts of the devil and to the assaults of wicked men. But though all the powers of earth and hell were to combine against me, though nature should sink into decay, still would I trust in the Lord and joy in the God of salvation. For I am fully persuaded that he will bring me off conqueror, yea, more than conqueror, through him who hath loved me and given himself for me. I've included a few books for further reading on your handout. And as we end, are there any questions? Did she have formal education? Not that I'm aware of. Um, she knew how to read and write, but I don't know that she had the opportunity to go to school. Um, 
even in free states or like Connecticut when she was growing up was practicing gradual abolition. There was still a lot of pushback against schools for black children. Um, eventually under the, the 1834 black law in Connecticut, you had to get the whole town's approval to establish a school to teach black children, which effectively meant that you wouldn't be able to do it. And there was really no question of integration or amalgamation as they called it at the time of black and white children learning together. So I think uh, the education that she had was informal through the minister's family that she worked for. It's just extraordinary that the, this entire series could be sneeringly dismissed with the first part of your talk. And some people would be, see, see what happens with figural reading? That's silly. And you've done both. You've both shown us that critique and then transcended it. I, extraordinary. I've got to ask you, because you had such a beautiful description of that not-so-beautiful church at the beginning, do you know, have you been to St. Mary's? Can you, do you, it was, I, I imagine, obviously, there's not a political figure at the center, but Christ. What is that church like? Is it still standing? Do you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, I'm just curious with the visual culture of this kind of faith. Um, I do believe it is still standing, the building. I have not been there. I haven't been around Washington, D.C. for a while. Um, but I don't think it is St. Mary's Episcopal Church anymore. I did look it up in my research, and I can't remember what it is now. But the building is still around, and it's on um, the black history path of Washington, D.C., just like the African Meeting House, where she delivered her speeches and was married, is on the Black Freedom Trail in Boston. As we were talking through the discussion questions of and it says, whom does Maria center in her figural reading? We are trying to figure out what that, what that looks like. Is it her? Is it women in the church and the Christian tradition? We were kind of a little confused about that. Yeah. To hear more. Yeah. Um, I have to admit, I was going for the answer I try to get my four and five-year-olds in Sunday school to give, which is Jesus. <laughs> um, because on the one hand, you can see it as centered in her because she's speaking in the first person. But I also see her pointing to Christ. You know, she says, St. Paul said it was a shame for a woman to speak in public, yet our great high priest and advocate, Jesus Christ, didn't condemn the woman for doing that. Um, so she sees her answer and her legitimacy in Christ's advocacy for women and also in his spiritual advocacy for us in uh, the Hebrews 4 verse that she's referencing there. And then in the final paragraph, the farewell paragraph, she points to the lamb that was slain, to him that sitteth on the throne. She's not comparing herself to Jesus, which is what John Daniel did. Um, Lee came to do to suffer and to die for us. I don't know how death from pneumonia is a sacrificial death for other people. Um, John Daniel did not see it that way. Mariah Stewart doesn't compare herself to the Christ figure, like people compare Robert E. Lee even today. Um, and also, the fruit of the Spirit, to me, is in that 
last few lines when she refers to the Sermon on the Mount, that she can bless those who have hated her and to pray for those cheerfully who have used and persecuted her. And to me, that shows a huge work of the Spirit done in her heart. Um, I hope to get there someday. <laughs> Just a comment, this, this is not her figural reading, but I was fascinated by her little exegetical device here. Uh, it seems if you perceive a conflict between Jesus and Paul, she seems to be saying, go with Jesus first and figure Paul out later. <laughs> uh, maybe some of us need to do that too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just curious why she only, and maybe you already said this and I missed it, um, why she spoke and wrote publicly for only three years? Yeah. Um, we don't have like a very specific stated reason this is why I decided to stop, but it was uh, very physically dangerous for her to do that. Um, at, David Walker had been assassinated for writing on race relations, and riots were very common in those days when people saw black and white people gathering together as equals. And also it was just shocking for a woman to speak before a promiscuous or mixed gender audience. Um, so my personal interpretation of that is that she did what she could for three years, perhaps saw that it was not as um, effective in the long term as she would hope because these other things, threats of violence, were getting in the way of the message. And so she turned to black uplift through education, through nursing, um, because she, she was dedicated to giving people opportunities that she hadn't had in establishing free schools or paid schools, teaching in them, raising up other teachers, and working as a nurse in a hospital that had been built for um, black union soldiers who were not taken care of at other hospitals that only served white people. I just would observe that um, in speaking of her ability to forgive, she doesn't say it in such a way that brings glory to her. She says, the bitterness of my soul has departed. Mm -hmm. It obviously was a work of God. Yeah. And she said, now I'm able to forgive. And she didn't say, I've risen up over this and, you know, caused that to look like mm -hmm. she's lifting up herself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great observation. And in other places in her speeches, um, she refers to the parable of the talents and um, to the, the forgiving and the unforgiving servant. And so I think her views on forgiveness were shaped by Jesus in the parable. You might have said this already, and I just didn't take it in, but um, was the church that was denying... Um, black people communion, was that also an Anglican church? Yes, it was. It was an Episcopal church that she had somehow joined as a parishioner, but they were okay with denying communion to people who come to worship there. Um, and the St. Mary's was part of the Protestant Episcopal denomination, and eventually it was pastored by a black priest. Um, but when they first started it, 
they didn't have anyone ordained who could fill that role. So it was a white minister with only black parishioners for a while until um, they got different leadership. So yeah, same denomination as Robert E. Lee. <laughs> Melody, um, I'm troubled by her being denied um, her inheritance mm -hmm. uh, upon her husband's death. And um, I'm wondering, was, was that because her marriage was not honored from a black church? Or was it just because she was black that she was being denied this right. Yeah, um, Mariah is a little too nice <laughs> to let us know exactly why all of that happened. But I think one reason that it might have is because um, her husband's business partners in his shipping agency wanted to keep um, the funds within the business so they didn't leave her anything to support herself with. Um, she she was able to support herself. She had a lot of employable skills, um, but they just denied her the inheritance that she should have received. Um, but her husband was a veteran of the War of 1812, so there is a chance that once that war was included in the federal government's um, dispense, or pensions for widows, that she might have received that at some point. But as far as we can tell, uh, after she was widowed, she worked to support herself for the rest of her life. I really appreciated the distinction between the sort of good figural reading and bad figural reading. Um, I was wondering about another example in African-American tradition, um, particularly the work of James Cone in his uh, Protestant Religion mm -hmm. looks at Martin Luther King as a sort of like figural type of Christ in a way that seems to avoid some of the errors of the kind of wee bad figural reading that you were mm -hmm. mentioning. But on the other hand, it seems like it might I'm wondering if, if those kinds of cases where you have an exemplar of virtue, particularly, uh, I think Cohn uh, applauds King for his nonviolence and tries to see King, who himself saw him, his work like atoning for white America. Right. How do you process, given your heuristic, your example? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I hadn't thought about connecting it to Cohn's use of MLK in that book, because it's been several years since I read it. Um, but I think it's, it's noteworthy that King was assassinated, that in some sense there was a sacrifice there to his death and not just a death of old age. Um, and also the way that King presented himself through his speeches. I mean, he, was, he had a doctorate in theology and he was a reverend. Um, so you can see that coming through in his speeches of how he interprets his place as the work of justice, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So I would be more comfortable when, with saying that MLK was Christ-like because of those things, whereas I'm not comfortable with Lee, people saying that about Robert E. Lee. Um, 
but also the way that MLK has been memorialized is very different from Lee. There's not as much of a tangle of lies there. Um, and I think part of that is because MLK, with all his um, sins and foibles, was listening to the Holy Spirit, was sacrificing himself in a way that we don't see with, with other people. Um, and of course, this always makes me think of uh, St. Caesar Romero, who was assassinated um, by communists for speaking out against their human rights violations while he was performing the Eucharist. Um, all right um, close this out in prayer mariah w stewart is not yet commemorated on the anglican calendar but i would propose september 21st for her date because she delivered several of her speeches on september 21st in different years so in the meantime, let us conclude with the collects for the Universal Church. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Thank you, Melody. That was really wonderful. Thank you so much. Next week, uh, James Beitler is going to be with us uh, with um, a talk on C.S. Lewis. So that should be a lot of fun. And hope to see you back then. Thank you. <laughs>